Tonight I want to speak about the recollection of the Dhamma. Each of these recollections has a particular chant, a way of reciting a statement of praise that brings forth the different qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Earth, the Sangha. And so tonight, we're going to work with the recollection of the Dhamma. And the traditional chant in Pali says, Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatam Veditapu Vinyuhiti. It's a nice short one. <laughs> and it's included in a lot, it's embedded in a lot of other Buddhist chants. Sometimes when you hear the monastics doing the chants, there's a whole bunch of things, and then you'll hear this line. And then you'll hear a whole bunch of other things in Pali, and then this line. So it's something that appears in different places. When we recollect the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, we undertake this as a practice that brings delight, it brings joy, and it brings energy to the mind. The tradition selects out these particular phrases for us to mull over, to think about, to recollect. As we chant these lines, we reflect upon the meaning of them. We let these thoughts that are very beautiful about the Dhamma, the teachings, or if we're doing the Buddha recollection, the Buddha or the Sangha, then we think about the community of practitioners. We let the meaning uplift our minds, bring happiness, uplift consciousness. And they function in the meditation to soothe any agitation that might have occurred. We can also take these lines not as a um, verbal chant, but we can take them as a silent meditative contemplation. And then we might dwell with the simple thought of the Dhamma. What inspires us to learn these teachings? What is good about the Dhamma? Now, as I've been writing this uh, book, um, my second book, I've just recently got the, the edits back from a copy editor and going through it, and we've been working on the poly. Actually, we've been spending uh, trying to figure out the little lines and the little dots and the little diacritics as well. Um, it seems that, that they haven't all been entirely standardized. Not all the dictionaries agree. And what do you do when you look at two different dictionaries and they don't agree? Or, what do you do if the two dictionaries agree, but Bhikkhu Bodhi disagrees? <laughs> That's a real tricky one. <laughs> so, the, um, the term Dhamma, one of the, the reasons I, my mind went to the editing is because some of the Pali terms have been so frequently used in literature and in our language that they're not italicized, they're not defined, they're just treated like English terms. How many of you are comfortable with the term Dhamma? 
Only a couple of you. Most not. How, how many of you are comfortable with the term Buddha? More. And what about Sangha? About the same. Okay. So, so some of these words are part of your, your vocabulary in the sense that you wouldn't need the word to define. But what does Dhamma mean? It refers to the teachings, the path, the, uh, the teachings of liberation. Last week I spoke about Buddha. Buddha refers to, or last month, in the first, the first talk in this series, I spoke about the recollection of the Buddha, which is to recollect the awakened one, the possibility of awakening. The Dhamma refers to the teachings of awakening. The way things are, to understand the nature of things, to awaken to the truth of things. So we recite these chants, but we recite them not as a kind of magical incantation, nor as a kind of prayer. We recite them as a way of contemplating their meaning. And when we take it as a meditative practice, we might use it as a concentration practice and focus just on one little piece of it, one word, and then let the mind dwell on the meaning of that word. And as we contemplate the meaning of the word, we find that we grow happy and focused in that attention. So for the development of concentration, we abbreviate the practice. We take it in little tiny bite-sized pieces, quite literally one word or phrase at a time. And when we take it as a broader kind of daily contemplation, we'll take the whole recollection, the whole phrase, and chant the whole, the whole thing, and take it as a kind of broader refuge of taking refuge in the Dhamma. If we take it as a concentration practice to focus the mind on the thought of the Dhamma, what do we focus upon? If I said just focus on the Dhamma, what would your mind go to? Our minds usually need to hold something, something kind of clear, something that we can repeat, something that we can turn over and mull. And so we grab a hold of a single concept, and then as the mind dwells more and more continuously with this very wholesome concept, this very beautiful thought of the Dhamma, of the teachings of liberation, then the gladness and happiness, concentration and focus grows within our mind. And as the one-pointedness and concentration develops on this single wholesome object, such as the Dhamma, or it could be the recollection of the Buddha or the Sangha, then the mind naturally lets go of its entrancement with hindrances, with desire, with aversion, with restlessness, with doubt. And it stimulates the arising of all the happiness factors and the factors associated with deep concentration. And so through a recollective practice, through the thinking about or the remembering or recalling of these wholesome thoughts of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, we can develop such a strong, um, such, such strong jhana factors or factors associated with concentration that we bring the mind right to the threshold of deep absorption, 
these factors, these, I mean, these objects of the recollections of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, don't take the mind into a full absorption because we have to keep holding the concept and turning it around in our minds. But they develop so such a strong concentration that it is just like it's called access concentration in the traditional um, commentarial teachings. But the mind is just like absorption without the object to absorb in. The quality of mind is free from the hindrances and the factors of concentration are strong. I mention this not because I expect you to go home and develop this recollection to that extent, but to know that although this is called mindfulness or recollection of, of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha as a practice, it can be taken to very strong meditative depths as well as a daily refuge, as well as a daily inspiration in our practice. I have often used the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha on retreats because often in a long retreat there comes some time when I get a little restless, I get a little antsy, I get a little agitated and it's natural that this happens because we put forth an awful lot of energy in retreat and what are we trying to do? We're just focusing our mind on something as simple as the breath and after you do that for 10, 12, 14 hours a day kind of sometimes a little agitation arises once in a while and some of you just came back from a 10-day concentration retreat and you might know you know yes it put forth all this energy and sometimes beautiful beautiful things happen but there's this period sometimes that happens where it's just like you know you don't want anybody to get in your way you know somebody comes in late and is <laughs> or the bell rings and you think, I was just getting going, and you get irritated. Actually, most of the time people are relieved when the bell rings, but... That's usually at the beginning of the retreat is the relief. Towards the end of the retreat, people actually get a little irritated. It's like, ah, oh, I was just getting going, and she goes and stops this. <laughs> so. So what do we do when we experience this kind of agitation which most meditators experience? And it's not a bad sign. We're not like falling into states of hatred. You know, we're just feeling a little, a little agitated because of the, of the, of the, uh, the, 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 the period of our practice when we're pushing the boulder up the hill. <laughs> and so there's, um, and the traditional instruction is to choose an object that inspires the mind, that uplifts the mind, and to let go of the focus on the breath at that moment and focus instead on the recollection of the Buddha or the recollection of the Dhamma or the recollection of the Sangha and gain the energy, the inspiration, the delight, the lightening and uplifting qualities that come with those recollections. And so sometimes we do shift our object, and it's nice to have a few of these inspiring practices that we know how to do so that we don't just keep getting tense. We just take ourselves a little break, and it's not like we have to stop meditating when we take a break. We just recollect the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha 
for however long we feel like it, 10, 20, 30 minutes, an hour, a couple of sittings, whatever we wish. And then when we feel the mind is refreshed, we return again to, um, to the, our primary practice, which on this past retreat for most people was um, the, using the breath as the primary object. These meditations are classified as protective meditations. And the other protective meditations include the practice of loving-kindness, or the recollections of death, the reflections on death and impermanence, or the reflections on our virtues or generosity, because they also protect the mind from falling into obstructive states. Thoughts of generosity keep the mind from falling into greed states. They allow the mind to gain happiness and joy in the experience of sharing, in the experience of connection, in the experience of letting go. And that becomes a mode in which our mind delights and becomes happy and loses the fear of letting go, the fear of, of scarcity. And we find instead happiness and delight in that sharing. Similarly, with the, the, when we reflect upon the precepts, we don't reflect on the precepts so that we think about and become guilt, feel guilty and remorse for you know some little faux pas that we made a week ago and some little nasty thing that we said two years ago and something that we found in our backpack that we didn't mean to take it's somebody's pencil or somebody's pen and we realize we stole it and we feel guilty for life because of it. You know, we don't try to beat ourselves up basically by the recollection. Instead, we focus on the good things that we've done and we let them inspire us so that again, we develop happiness in wholesome states. Similarly, when we recollect the Dhamma and we think about the, the beauty of the path, the beauty of the training, the value of the teachings of liberation, when we recognize the, the wonder of having access to these teachings, then we don't think, oh, the teachings are so beautiful, but I'm so far from understanding them, or put ourselves down in relationship. We keep our minds from going into any kind of negative state, and we focus instead on the, the, the positive, wholesome aspect. So we train our minds to become glad and concentrated in relationship to the wholesome. We find these, um, um, this term Dhamma occurring as one of the refuges. I take refuge in the Dhamma. And there it's one of the jewels. We also find it as this recollective practice where it's called Dhamma Nusati is the name of the practice. Recollection or mindfulness is the sati of the Dhamma. What is the Dhamma? I've been talking about it primarily as the teachings, but a more classic definition is the liberating law discovered and proclaimed by the Buddha that is summed up in the Four Noble Truths. So here when we think of the Dhamma, we're thinking of the teachings of understanding suffering, abandoning the causes of suffering, 
realizing the ending of suffering, and practicing the way to the ending of suffering. The Dhamma is a big topic. It includes something that we know. It includes something that we do in abandoning the causes of suffering. It includes something of realization. You can't quite say that that's a doing. And um, it also includes a cultivation of a path. The chant that I um, started the, the, the evening with, the talk with, I'll repeat again. Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanariko Pachatam Veditapu Vinyuhiti we find that occurring in many of the discourses of the Buddha. It's something that has been pulled out from the canon, from the Pali canon, just as the recollection of the Buddha and the recollection of the Sangha, which we'll work with next month, um, were also extracts from the discourses of the Buddha from the suttas. The English translation of this Pali line says, I um, included two English translations. I think they're very similar, but sometimes I think it's interesting just to read slight variations because they stimulate a slightly different thought. Some just feel more comfortable to read to different people. The Dhamma is well proclaimed by the Blessed One, visible here and now, not delayed, inviting of inspection, onward leading, and directly experienceable by the wise. Or, well expounded is the Dhamma by the Exalted One, directly visible, unaffected by time, calling one to come and see, leading onwards to be realized by the wise. And I'd like to, for the remainder of the talk, look at these phrase by phrase or word by word. Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo refers to, or is translated as, Either the Dhamma is well proclaimed by the Blessed One, or well expounded is the Dhamma by the Exalted One. Yeah, pretty much the same translation, right? The Visuddhimagga explains the meaning of this by looking at, by stating that the Dhamma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, pure in its meaning and in its detail. So it refers to a purity at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Dhamma that is proclaimed. So what does this mean, good in the beginning? Basically, the Dhamma is founded, the practice, the teachings are founded upon teachings of virtue, of Siva. And this is the basis that we develop in the beginning. And virtue is good, therefore the Dhamma is good in the beginning. It actually states it that simply. It also says that faith is the starting point. There has to be some degree of confidence in the path, of faith in the path. And so faith is also good, therefore it is good at the beginning. It also says that our intentions must be good to start the path. We have an intention towards compassion. We have an intention towards well-being. We have an intention to discover the truth of things. These are good. 
We are motivated out of a desire for our happiness and for the happiness of others, out of a desire to end our suffering and to end the suffering of all, to, to, to explore this dynamic of what causes suffering and free ourselves from the habits that perpetuate suffering. And this is good. It's said that it is good Oh, it's also good in the beginning because by recollecting the, um, uh, the Dhamma, it suppresses the hindrances. Just the thought of the Dhamma. When our mind is thinking about Dhamma, we're not thinking about hatred. We can't have two thoughts at once. We're not thinking about greed. We're not thinking about anything else. When we're thinking about the Dhamma, we're thinking about the Dhamma. And so it is good as an object because we're, it places our mind in a wholesome state just by the virtue of, 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 of having that as the object, and it suppresses the hindrances naturally. So um, the, the Visuddhimagga explains that there are these various reasons why this is good in the beginning, that the Dhamma that is well proclaimed by the Blessed One is good in the beginning. It also says it's good in the middle, because the full path, the full development of the path is good. We don't have to wait until the end before we reap the fruits. Along the way, along the course of our Dhamma practice, along the course of the development of our, of our knowledge, we develop concentration, we develop insight, we develop serenity, equanimity, joy, delight, basically good qualities. So there's a development not only of internal qualities, but it's also good in our relationships. We develop a purity in speech and livelihood. We develop a clarity of our mind, in, in the mind. Most people will find that um, when they come home from a retreat, that their family will be actually happy to see them, but glad actually at the greater patience, the greater kindness, the greater um, equanimity that develops. Okay, it's not 100%, but most of the time, <laughs> most of the time, I've had many students say that it was their children who told them, when is your next retreat? Why don't you sign up for another one? <laughs> or their spouses, or uh, <laughs> somebody, they, Externally, sometimes people see that the developments that occur are, are, are recognizable and they're good. We also, the path is also described as rich in teachings and suitable for any being who can be trained. <laughs> I like thinking of that as being beings, that we are beings who can be trained. You know, we're not so stuck in our habits that we can't change. We know we wouldn't, we wouldn't be undertaking and learning a new practice if we didn't recognize how malleable our minds are, how open we are to learning, to changing, to growing, and how willing we are to train ourselves to know that that training didn't end just when we turned 18, you know, that all of a sudden we knew enough and we were set in our ways forever. 
No, we continue to train ourselves. And so instead of training ourselves in harmful habits, we train ourselves in good things, in beautiful things. I find this good in the middle to be especially important um, since we just finished that retreat last week. Um, it was a 10-day deep concentration retreat, the deep concentration states called jhana. And whenever there are these uh, progressive practices where there's four jhanas, you know, and there's this sense of needing to attain a certain something, people sometimes set up expectations. And the expectations can be, I will succeed if I get into the first jhana. Somebody else will set up this expectation. It will, I will succeed if I get into the fourth jhana on this retreat. Somebody else will have a different expectation. I will succeed if I experience enlightenment. <laughs> or whatever. And the problem with the desire for something is whenever there is a strong desire for an attainment, very quickly on the heels of that comes the sense of failure when it doesn't happen. I am a failure because I didn't get into jhana. I am a failure because I only got into the second jhana and not the fourth jhana. I am a failure because I've never experienced, had an enlightenment experience or something. And so this desire to succeed brings with it its dualistic component, which is the fear of failure. And through that desire to succeed and that fear of failure, sometimes we have a concept of self that just gets caught and is buffeted back and forth between success and failure, success and failure. But what is the success and what is the failure? That movement of success and failure is just a concept that is arising within our own minds around what? A concept of self. It's just concepts bumping up against other concepts that seem to do nothing other than reinforce concepts. The concepts of self, the concepts of success, and the concepts of failure. If you poke, any at, poke at any of those and see if they're real, you'll quickly realize that not only is there really no success and really no failure that can be substantiated, that can be stood upon, you know, that I have attained, I have failed. There's no I there. The very concept of self starts to fall away. So the understanding of the well-proclaimed Dhamma, the understanding that it is good in the middle, is understanding that we don't need to keep establishing this, um, this success, this idea of an end goal and that things aren't really good until we have achieved our goal. But there is the good in the end. And the good in the end is saying, go for the goal. Go for the goal. This path leads directly to realization of Nibbana, to the deep experience of lasting peace. It produces this powerful cleansing of heart and mind that illuminates reality as it is. And so when the mind is clear and the heart is clean and we are completely present for things as they are, we are not attached 
to any concept of being this way or being that way. And the mind is freed from grasping. So it's good in the beginning, good in the middle, and also good in the end. Now, sandhitiko refers to being directly visible or visible here and now. Now, this visible is an interesting thing. It has a sense of a view in it, and the path begins with right view, right seeing. This practice is uh, worthy of our exploration. It's worthy of our seeing. It's worthy to be penetrated by direct realization, to really see things as they are. There can be a very intimate experience with truth. Not so much seeing with the physical eye, but seeing with the mind, seeing reality, how things are having a clear perception. And the Buddha describes the realization of the path as being obvious, as being so obvious that anyone with good eyesight would be able to see. Just as anybody, he would say, just as anybody, somebody with good eyesight would be able to see an object in a well-lit room. So with the realization of the eye of wisdom, we can see a reality as it actually is. When we have a direct realization of the Dhamma, it's as clear as looking at our hand and seeing the palm of our hand you know, in, in a well-lit room or direct sunlight. It's just that obvious, just that ordinary, that natural. There's nothing confused, there's nothing distorted, there's nothing unclear about it. We don't wonder, oh, what's the hand? We just see our hand. It doesn't require a lot of elaborate explanations. We don't have confusions or doubts about it. We don't need to ask um, for confirmation. Is this my hand? No, we just know this is my hand. And so it is with the realization of peace, of nibbana, of liberation. It is so obvious, and it is so clear, we absolutely know it. We seem to see the truth of things vividly, not just in a momentary experience, but it affects the way that we see all things. Akaliko means unaffected by time, not delayed or timeless. Poonjiji used to say that a finger snap is too long. And a realization does not happen in the space of a finger snap. That is way too long. You can't put it into time. It's not that it takes a half of a finger snap or a fraction of a finger snap. It's that it is not an experience bound by time. Now the Dhamma teachings and the practices that we undertake may seem to be rather arduous and may take an awful lot of time. And it may seem even as though this lifetime isn't long enough to do all the various Buddhist practices that are available. But actually the penetration of the Dhamma is not dependent upon a long or conditioned process. It occurs outside the framework of time. It is timeless. 
unborn, unaging, deathless. It's quite literally immediate here and now, but it is also not limited to the present. Ehipasiko is translated as calling one to come and see or inviting of inspection. It's a beautiful thought to, to recognize that these teachings are not proclaiming, believe me, this is something that you have to adopt. No, it's saying, come and see for yourself. Don't believe it based upon tradition, upon hearsay, upon faith. Don't believe it because I say so and I'm the teacher. Don't believe it because you read about it on the internet. Please don't. <laughs> don't believe it because somebody famous said it. Just look for yourself. Come and see. It's invitational. You have the potential to discover the truth for yourself. The earliest ordinations in the Buddhist tradition occurred when the Buddha said, Come bhikkhu. He just said this, this phrase, Come bhikkhu was enough to call somebody and to realize that they were being called into the Dhamma, invited to see for themselves. Here again we have a reference to come and see, to a reference to seeing, to investigating. The Buddha Dhamma is not a secret teaching. It's not some special um, teaching that you have to get special initiations for and special rites and special certificates and then that there's some closed door session where I whisper something to you and now you are able to do that practice. Instead you are invited, come and see for yourself, come and practice. Here the Dhamma in the, in the, in the Vasudhimaga, the Dhamma, Dhamma is contrasted to, it's, it's said that it's not like gold in a closed fist. I have gold in my fist. I have gold. Do you know that I have gold? No, you can't tell if I have gold because the fist is closed. It's instead said that it's, it's undeceptive, it's open-handed, so you can see what is there. Oh, there's no gold, sorry. <laughs> um, it's also contrasted with being um, like likened to, not like, sorry, not likened to, it's like not likened to. Sometimes they, they turn these opposites around and it makes it hard to say. But it's not like, um, it would, okay, imagine a pile of stinky, dumb poop. It's not like that. <laughs> because that doesn't invite inspection. That's something that's said to be covered up by grasses and leaves. You know, okay, they didn't really have the same kind of toilets that we had in ancient India. They just basically went out and crapped in the field or the ground. And so then, you know, if they wanted to be discreet, they'd cover it up with some grasses and leaves. Um, Anyway, the Dhamma is not like that, because that doesn't invite one to want to go check it out. It's instead, the Dhamma is like a full moon disc on a cloudless night sky. It draws the eye to it, 
People want to see it. It's visible to all who turn to look. It's undeceptive, faultless, and lovely to all who see it. Now, Opanayiko is translated as leading onwards or onward leading. It's worthy of realizing and developing because it induces and leads the noble person on to Nibbana, on to liberation. The teachings of the path are comprehensive. One who practices this path is not going to get stuck at minor pleasures. We're not going to stop just because we got a little peace or a little calmness or fixed one particular problem in our life. We don't become attached to the minor benefits. Instead, we recognize that it, the path develops all the many things along the way, but each one, from each improvement that we make in our lives and within our minds, we realize that that has created a foundation to develop something more to go further, to lead us onward. So find, so we go step by step, stage by stage, bit by bit, until we realize the ultimate peace. Pachatam Vedita Pu Linyuhiti means directly experienceable by the wise or to be realized by the wise. This practice is not realized by fools. It's visible within one's own mind. It's experienced by each individual. And so there must be some inner clarity to allow us to see the truth of things. This doesn't mean there has to be a particular IQ level. That's not what is meant by the fool. A fool is somebody who doesn't understand what leads to harm and what leads to happiness. A fool is somebody who sees happiness in things that cause corruption, that cause pain, that cause um, agitation in our minds and in our communities. A fool is somebody who doesn't understand the power of virtue and the power of cultivating the mind and the potential to free the mind. And so we develop our path bit by bit, struggling to overcome all of our difficulties. And in that process, we realize that even when we're struggling with a lot of different issues and we come across our various tendencies and the ill will, the desire, and the frustration, and we just work through them, we realize that each time we encounter them, there is a wisdom that is growing because we have recognized the pain in them. We don't have a foolish relationship to our own hindrances. We end up developing a wise relationship to them and then use that wisdom to overcome them. The Dhamma must be experienced, directly experienced. It's not something that is conceptually adopted. It's not something that's intellectually understood. It's not an academic study. And it's also said to not be an ornament that is worn by a teacher. It's not an ornament that is worn by a preceptor or a guru. This is important because sometimes at the time of the Buddha, people would, would see, oh, enlightenment or wisdom, that's something my teacher has. No, that's not enough. 
One has to practice it with oneself. It has to be experienced by the wise. So we all develop the wisdom and are then all practicing together. It's also said to not be produced by association with the guru, but it's realized through the genuine experience of things as they actually are, of the development of our practice. So I'd like to do the chant again. I'll go through it. And then I'd like to do a call and response. And maybe do it a couple of times. Give you a chance to maybe think about it as we, as we do it instead of just stumble over the poly terms. Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatam Veditapu Vinyuhiti Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatam Veditapu Vinyuhiti Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatam Veditapu Vinyuhiti Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatam Veditapu Vinyuhiti Let's try it once together. Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatam Veditapu Vinyuhiti Well done! Well done! So if you were to practice this at home, what you would do is you would take, you would say the, perhaps say the phrase, the whole thing. And sometimes people just start their meditation, like in the monasteries, there would be a chant of the recollections of these at the beginning of a sitting, and then just do one's meditation. But if you wanted to take it as a more focused meditation on this topic, then sit, I would recommend saying the whole phrase, and you can use the English if you prefer the English to the um, Pali. There's nothing magical about the Pali sounds. 
So after you uh, after you say the whole thing, then just pick one of the phrases and contemplate the meaning of it. And just let the mind dwell with the meaning of it for some time. And then if you start to wander off, come back either to the meaning or say the word again to bring yourself back to the meaning. And then use the word to keep bringing yourself back to the meaning until the mind stays happily contemplating the meaning of the word. Anyway, you might enjoy it. It's a fun practice. Do you have any um, questions, any comments, discussion? Did anybody try the Buddha reflection from last month? You did? I'd be curious to hear a little bit about how it went. Any questions, any problems, anything that was interesting? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Doug, would you be willing to say something? Uh, I was okay. with the, um, in the current issue of inquiring mind towards uh, the back, there's an article by Victor Bode on the practice of the resurrection of the Yes, wasn't that timely? So that was um, a little more specific, something for me to go back to and, and read and reflect on it. And I was able to find that's great. Are there more in the magazine? There are a few. There are a few. Okay, great. So if you haven't picked up the the inquiring minds, you're very welcome to and read the Bhikkhuvodi's article on the recollection of the Buddha that's in English. I don't know what it would be lovely to bump into one on the recollection of the Dhamma this month. <laughs> so, um, struggle with this a little bit. It was easy to consider what the attributes arahato to create the spokes of the cycle of suffering. So these are these are very interesting points. So um, you, you see this statue with the with the hand down. It's not the only posture of the Buddha, but it happens to be one of the more common ones because it's the moment of his enlightenment. And so this gesture is one of the most common of the of the the, the gestures that we find in the statues. Although there are also gestures of teaching, there are gestures of meditating. There. Are, standing and walking Buddhas and reclining Buddhas and dying Buddhas. They have Buddhas in all kinds of postures. And so the instructions for the recollection of the Buddha that I gave you last month 
included visualizing the Buddha image. Did you notice, though, that this month, the instructions did not include visualizing the Dhamma? There isn't a visualizing component to this practice, to the Dhamma practice. The visualizing component is included, of course, it was not taught that way at the time of Buddha, because there were no Buddha images. It took a number of hundred years, I don't even remember how many hundred years was it. Does anyone know, was it like 500 years after the Buddha's death before images were made? It was an influence from the Greeks that were influencing um, the, the Buddhism in, um, in Afghanistan, where the first statues were made, if I remember right. We have an artist coming next year, so we can ask her for sure. But, you know, they were having all these statues of Apollo and the Buddhists we did go figure out how Apollo we should have Buddha. <laughs> and the early images of Buddha looked an awful lot like Apollo. <laughs> so <laughs> the earliest Buddha images looked Greek because that was what statues looked like. So they made them look like statues. And so each culture and each country ended up developing their own style and their own look. Now, um, did the Buddha have this face? Did his ears really touch his shoulders? Uh, who knows? <laughs> but certainly, uh, it wasn't made out of wood. But, <laughs> so how do we hold the image uh, when it's not a part of ancient Buddhism, it's just something that has come through the cultures? And so we have to hold that with some kind of a some wisdom, some wisdom. And then we're also sometimes coming from our own culture and our own background that may not, that may have um, issues around icons and worshiping icons. And usually we don't, I don't, usually I don't talk about Buddha images at all. And we don't come in and bow and do all that stuff which you might in a more traditional temple situation. But that particular recollection, I always find Whole, starting with the Buddha image makes the concentration so much stronger for me because then I have something to focus on. So I find the Buddha recollection much, much easier for a meditation practice because I have the Buddha image in my mind and I can focus on it. And then I can go to the meaning of the phrases from there. This practice of the recollection of the Dhamma doesn't give us that thing to kind of like focus the mind on. And so we have, sometimes I, sometimes I won't start with the Dhamma one. I'll start with the Buddha one, or I'll start with mindfulness with breathing, and then after my mind is settled and not moving off into other thoughts, then I'll do the Dhamma one. But you can find out what your mind will do. Every mind is different, and not every mind likes visualizations. So yeah, some minds prefer to turn around a, a pure thought, but my mind actually much prefers to have that, that image. And then I, let, then I let the image go, or I let it transform, because I never think I'm worshiping wood. And I never think <laughs> that the Buddha looks like that. Or that all those attributes were anything other than a way of communicating visually and artistically and symbolically the various qualities of the Buddha. Like the ear, the long ears have a meaning, and the, the little thing at the top of his head has a meaning, and the gesture has a meaning and the angles and all have meaning. At one point I took a class where we were drawing tankas of the Buddha and everything was very precise, I mean extremely precise. And 
um, oh, there was so much erasing on that paper. They <laughs> <laughs> actually worn through the paper, and I had to put paper on the back of the paper to patch it by patch it by patch it by a tire, because um, I was erasing, and the teacher came through and said, no, 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 because all everything has meaning and the symbolic meaning of the portions are all very significant. So this uh, it's so it's an interesting thing. I'm really glad you you did you, you practice with it because it's only by actually practicing with it that we get to see our responses. And then we get to consider how do we relate to religious symbolism. And do we want to incorporate any of that into our Dharma practice or not? And it's perfectly fine to not. It's perfectly fine. I like the poly. So I do it in poly. But if you want to know for the poly and just pick up the English, great. Um, no problem. Um, I just find that the poly is easier for me because I've heard it so many times in poly that it's easier for me to remember the poly than it is to remember the English. A couple of years ago, my husband and I went on a dosable tour at the Asian Art Museum of all the Buddha images. And that, and it talked, I don't remember the, the Greek part, but the, the, the different images from the different countries were, were quite fascinating. So I'm happy to chance to do that It's a really good recommendation to go to the Asian Art Museum. You know, we should probably do that as a field trip. Would people do that as a social activity? You know, go up and have a tour of it and then have a picnic in the park or something? And tour the Buddhists? They're kind of scattered throughout the museum, so you have to wander around. Okay, so we have to have good shoes. <laughs> okay, well, um, have a good evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.